Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi everyone, welcome to the next edition of Exploring Mormon Thought. And this one we're going to go over chapter 2 of the second volume, and that one is titled Providence and Prayer. So just to start out, providence for Mormons may not be a common term like we understand, kind of it's a good thing, but providence is basically the idea of how God interacts with his children, or kind of in what ways is he guiding the world or not. And so there's providence, and then there's prayer, and as we know, we pray to have God do things. We ask for his help and healing, but today we're going to talk about a lot of different issues, logically and otherwise, that come up with that. So, to introduce here, in Mormonism, perhaps the most repeated commandment in the revelations given to Joseph Smith is, ask and ye shall receive, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And so, just with that, we have this idea of Joseph Smith constantly kind of promoted this, of like, at least his relationship with God is like, oh, you know what, if you want to know something or you you have some issue with God, pretty much all you have to do is pray and he'll answer you because that's my experience. And that was his experience as far as we can tell. It might not be as simple for other people, but that's how he viewed it. Anyway, he had a lot of different prayers that were recorded and a lot of them boiled down to being like simple believers prayers. And I, I'll just read this quote before we talk about this further. So, Joseph Smith's prayers about that. He says, I believe that these prayers are typical of believers. They request that God grant petitions. They seek to enter into a personal relationship of forgiveness and trust with God, healing breaches and feelings of alienation. There is no sense that making these requests of God are problematic. Indeed, these prayers are offered in childlike trust that what is sought will be given. Kind of like I introduced there. So, as far as introducing it goes, do you want to add anything about Mormonism and prayers or anything in the intro? Yeah, I mean, prayer ought to be at the very center of a person's spirituality in the sense that, let's look at theism. I mean, broadly, what distinguishes theism from other types of religions is that God is personal. He is a responsive being. And let's just begin with, you know, what is the highest, the greatest value that we know in our experience here? And I suggest the greatest value we know is the people that we know, the dignity of their personhood that we all respect in the sense that we recognize that other persons make demands upon us merely in the sense that we have a shared common humanity and that persons are more than things. And so... When we seek God in prayer in a theistic tradition, and the great theistic traditions are, of course, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And in these traditions, people pray to God because God is like a person. He listens, he responds, he cares, and he interacts. And so we're talking about the type of thing where we're going to a trusted mentor, a loved father, a a being on whom we depend for our salvation and exaltation, a being who can lay demands upon us, and we're obligated to respond to those demands, a being who organized the world for our benefit, but a personal being above all else. And so personality is the greatest thing that we know in this world in our immediate experience. And we're addressing a particular personality. It just happens to be the personality of the most highly developed form of personality possible. And so 
in prayer, we can go for a lot of different reasons. You already talked about the kind of simple prayers of faith that Joseph Smith offered, and we'll be talking about various types of prayer. There's meditative prayer in which I'm looking to clear my head, find peace, and allow God to affect me in our relationship. There are petitionary prayers in which we ask God to do things that we can't do for ourselves and we know that He can, and we ask in faith that the prayer may make a difference. I read an article, there's an article in the current Journal of Faith and Philosophy that argues that prayer is even beneficial for atheists and that atheists can coherently engage in prayer. We won't be engaging that particular issue and problem. There are numbers of different types of prayer. We may be seeking a healing through prayer of ourselves, of others, of the world, or we may not be seeking anything at all other than simply to be able to express gratitude and thanks for this being who has done so much for us. So prayer is the very lifeblood of one's spiritual life. Now I'm going to make a distinction between spirituality and religion, okay? Spirituality is a quality of an individual person and their openness to a spiritual realm, however you want to define that. Religion is the organized result of spirituality. It is spirituality and expression to form community, to care for others, and to organize, to be able to do with others what one cannot do alone. And of course, what one cannot do alone is be in relationship with others. <laughs> so that's a part of what we do as well. But there are very essential philosophical problems that arise from the very notion of these various types of prayers, and that's what we seek to address. All right, great. And yeah, before we dive into the next section, which we go over the problem of prayer, I just wanted to introduce it with kind of what you have in the book here. It says, the problem of prayer does not arise if only the one praying is influenced by prayer. And well, I guess earlier in the chapter, you kind of talk about the idea that you just said that even atheists have found that a meditative practice of either gratitude or just kind of connecting to yourself in an honest way because like for example generally when believers pray most believe that god can read their thoughts he knows exactly what's going on in their mind and so it's kind of like talking to the only person or the only being that actually gets you because he sees all aspects and that's the only person you can actually open up to completely yeah i'll, I'll add that there are additional problems of prayer that i haven't addressed in this chapter one is does god honor our privacy in other words as human beings we have the ability to be opaque. We can be close to each other. We can deceive each other because we're opaque. And the argument is that God would not violate our freedom of privacy and invade our thoughts where he is a part of every thought that we have and knows every thought that we have. I will say that I don't find the arguments to be very persuasive. Only in America would you make the kind of argument that there's this inalienable right to not be spied upon. People have near-death experiences. One of the things that they all share, almost universally in every single experience, is that in the afterlife, spirits do not communicate by speaking, by moving air. They communicate telepathically, immediately knowing each other's mind. Anyway, there are these subsidiary issues of prayer that I want to acknowledge but won't be addressed. All right. Well, we might get to those today, and they might come up later, but yeah. Good to know that those are there as well. Anyway, so let me yeah continue with this quote. So I just gave the context because... We had talked about this atheist guy that talked about meditative prayer being beneficial to atheists also, or just to anyone, just because it's like a nice centering, meditating practice. And then that's when this quote comes. Says, the problem of prayer does not arise if only the one praying is influenced by prayer. 
But such prayers are limited in the sense that they do not foster a reciprocal and mutual relationship of loving fellowship. What the person approaching God may also seek, an opportunity to be of service to God, to give something to God, or to make a difference to God. So this is just kind of adding saying, you know, meditative practices are beneficial, but when a believer is seeking God in prayer, it's more than just centering themselves. It's just like we said here, you were looking for something. Anyway, so that brings us kind of into the next section, which is the actual problem of prayer, and Jacob's going to take the lead on that one. All right, and like you said, there are other problems of prayer, and so this could be a problem of prayer, but this is one of the biggest problems of prayer. And I'll start out with a quote you have and posit some good questions here, that the very act of prayer seems to posit a conflict. Kneeling before deity expresses both an intimate I-thou relationship and an infinite distance interposed between God and such limited beings as ourselves. I may speak to God, but how could I impart any information that he doesn't already know? I may ask God, but how could I ask for anything that he isn't already dedicated to offering for my greatest good? I may seek God, but how could I ever suppose that he hasn't already sought me? So with these types of issues, us coming before you know, an omnipotent, omniscient being, how do we solve these? I mean, what's the point in prayer if he already knows it all? <laughs> yeah, and the, and the basic problem arises, there are three basic problems. One is the disparity in knowledge, power, and scope of influence. The second is the mere fact that given that he knows so much better than we do, why would we ever try to inform him what to do given our limitations and given his goodness and dedication to doing what's good and knowing better than we do what's good? And the third issue is can God be influenced at all? Of course, in much of the Thomas tradition especially, God isn't acted upon. He is pure actuality. And so nothing we do influences God in the sense that we may influence other persons. And these are all problems that arise in the act of praying. If we get down on our knees and just pray, there's no problem. But if we get on our knees and start thinking about it, we may run into a big problem. Uh, and what kind of problem is that if we start thinking about it? Well, think about it. I've given an argument in the book, but I'll just make it very simple. And we've already stated it. Given that God is either all-powerful in the sense that I have defined or in the tradition omnipotent, given that he's all-good or loving, and given that he knows all, we could never suppose that there is a better state of affairs to be achieved by our asking God to do something because he knows far better than we do. He's already dedicated to bringing it about before we pray, and he has the ability to do it, whereas we don't. So the question arises, why on earth would we pray? I give a nine-premise argument, well, I give an eight-premise argument with a conclusion in the book, which basically expresses that kind of a problem, and that is that there's nothing we could ask for that he's not already doing. We certainly can't pray to seek to inform God about what the problems are. I hear sometimes people in church get up and say, now, you know, here we are all assembled, and this is what we're about. And I think to myself, just get on with it, because I think he already knows that, that kind of a thing. Another problem that comes up that I've thought about is like, well, is it wise? Should I actually be asking God to do something specifically? Because if we consider that God knows infinitely more than we do, and it's his plan and he has the power to bring it about, then I sure hope he actually doesn't listen to me because I might have a stupid idea that isn't actually good for me when he would have done something else if, you know, he can be influenced. Anyway, go on. 
Yeah, well, no, that's kind of what we're taught. You know, in Mormon history, we have Joseph Smith demanding of God three times. Martin Harris wanted to see the manuscript. He wanted to show it to his wife. And apparently, Joseph prayed twice, and God told him twice, don't even think of it. And the third time, it appears that God relented. Why Joseph thought that God might change his mind, or why he might think that praying often, pestering God would change it. It turned out to be a disaster, and then God had a plan B, which made it a blessing in disguise. So these are the kinds of issues philosophically that we get into. I ask God to do something. He tells me no, but I really want it, so I keep pestering him. He finally relents. It's a disaster, but God is so resourceful, he brings a blessing out of it. So we're looking at the way that God interacts, and in the Bible all the time. I mean, we see, you know, the prophets, there are two notions about the prophets. One is that the prophets are bold. They go before God and demand of God things. God tells the prophet what his plan is, and the prophet basically says, it happens with Moses, happens with Jeremiah and others, is basically, what, are you crazy? You can't do that. If you do that, it's going to be really messed up. No, do what I want you to do. And so we have these bold prophets, and when we're looking at all of this in hindsight, it's like, well, of course, God wanted the prophet to grow. He wanted to give up the prophet an opportunity to be involved in history. He wanted the prophet to exercise his power and relationship with God. And that's exactly what happened. The prophet was a, was a bold mediator in the history of the world. And we'll talk about, if you want, a specific type of issue with Moses when he goes up on the mountain and the, the children of Israel are below, they're building the idols. And God says, therefore, get me behind it, that I may destroy this people. And I will raise up of thee a great nation. Essentially, what he's saying is, I've had it with these people. They're wicked. They worship idols. Even when I've revealed myself to them, I'm just going to wipe them out. And you you go propagate your descendants, Moses, because I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Moses argues with God. He's like, what? No, you can't do that. If you do that, the Egyptians are going to think you let us out into the desert to do mischief to us. Anyway, so Moses comes up with all of these reasons why God shouldn't do what he told him he's going to do. And God essentially relents to Moses. Now, did, did God have a better plan than Moses did? At least in the days of Noah, things went to hell in a handbasket, and God, you know, this is, this is the, the mythos. God, God's response to that was to wipe out the world and start all over again. So God has all these responses, but the bottom line is that Moses was an intermediary with God to change the history of the world. At least that's how it's presented in the text. And those kinds of interchanges between Moses and God would have to be seen as prayer, because prayer is communication between human beings and God. And so we see here how the Bible presents this bold notion that we get to argue with God, we get to take him on, we, we get to assert ourselves, we get to be instrumental in the history of the world. He's looking for co-creators, not for rug mats. And the Bible is teaching us, you know, go for it. You don't need to be a wimp in God's presence, be bold. And so we have this kind of uh, at least one, one way of looking at the human-divine relationship in Scripture about prayer. And so it's like, well, if Moses had sat down and said to himself, you know, you know a lot more than I do, you're far more loving than I am, and you can get it done whereas I can't, so I'm just going to step aside and let you have your way, because I'd be stupid to ask you to change it, okay? So the philosophical arguments are suggesting that we're stupid to ask God to change anything, just as you suggested. It makes no sense. The scriptures are saying that's not what God's after. God is after humans who are bold in relationship with him, who will be co-creators with him in forming the future history of the world.
in being intermediaries between God and, and their people. And so, you know, we're asking now, well, what is the purpose of prayer? Is it to change God's mind the way Moses did? Is it to see, and what would be the problem with sitting down and saying, you know, Heavenly Father, last night I got on my knees and I directed you around your universe. I told you how to bless Aunt Martha and to get around to blessing my dog, and I wanted you to save all the people from the hurricane. And tonight I'm of the mind that that was stupid. I'm just going to let you inform me, and I'm just going to listen, because you know far better than I do. And I was stupid to try to direct you around your heavens. I figure you know your way around the heavens far better than I do. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, and, you know, I think believers kind of, you know, thoughtful believers at least vacillate between these kinds of positions. But logically, the problem is, and it's a, it's a subset of the problem of evil, I would suggest. If God is committed to bringing about good because he's loving, if he can bring about good because he's all-powerful, and he knows how to bring about all the good and knows what's best for us because he has all knowledge, then why on earth would we need to ask him to do anything because he would already be committed to doing it? That just had me thinking of kind of an analogy. I don't know if it goes 100%, but it could be, you know, when I am assembling a chair that I just bought and my son comes up and he wants to help assemble. Well, I've assembled many a chair, and it'll go really fast, and I'll be able to do it just great. But with him coming in and wanting to assemble the chair, I allow him to. It'll go slower. It'll take longer. I'll have to tell him what to do a lot of the times. I'll have to get in and assist him when he gets things wrong. But the whole purpose of me doing this is that eventually he'll be able to assemble his own chairs on his own, and he will get there faster by me allowing him to make the mistakes and guiding him through rather than me just doing it for him all the time. But that's not getting into this goodness issue. But Yeah. The problem would arise if, you, if your son came to you and told you how to assemble a chair when he'd never done it before. Which I guess we do all the time in prayer. That's the basic problem. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Another issue that comes up in prayer is the issue of foreknowledge. If God knows certain things are going to happen, what's the point of me praying for him? So you could delve into that a little bit. Yeah, this arises, and and we'll get into this in much greater detail later, but basically there are issues that arise with the way that God knows the future. And I'm just going to introduce these very quickly, and we'll come back to them later. But if God knows because he sees the future, then he can't do anything about it. Let's say that God sees that I'm going to pray, and he sees how he's going to respond before he can even plan or think about it. Well, he's not really responding to me. The future is simply set, and he's stuck with it, and neither one of us is free. I've already argued that in volume one, right? So prayer is just going through the motions, and neither one of us has free will. Neither one of us can really alter anything. We're just working through fate. If God knows in the way that Thomas thinks that he knows, and that is that he is causally influencing, what Thomas believed when we went through this in, in volume one is that God knows because he causes things to be the way they are. So I can know what the future is going to be because I'm going to cause the future to be the way it's going to be. But if I'm the one bringing about the future, including your prayer, it seems to me that the prayer is just a complicated way of God speaking to himself to get the result that he wants. And that would be equally true in Calvinism. But we'll delve into these kinds of issues even more, because if God has simple foreknowledge, he can't make any difference. He's stuck with what he sees before he can get to it to make any difference to him. If he has causal foreknowledge the way that Thomas believed, then it's just a facade, and there's only one being really in the relationship, and that's God. There's no relationship possible, and that would be true of Calvinism as well. But there are problems even if God doesn't have foreknowledge. 
and we adopt an open theistic point of view because we're assuming God doesn't know the way it is, but he still knows a whole heck of a lot more than we do. And if we try to direct him what the future should be like, he's already got A, B, and C. The difference is, is that God's waiting on us to see what we do in order to form his response to what we do. So I think we can make more sense of it on an open view of God as opposed to the more controlling views that God would have in relationship to us on the Calvinist or the Thomistic views. And I haven't even discussed the Molinist view, and that is that God has middle knowledge, you know, that view. But I believe they're all ultimately come out with sophisticated ways that God is speaking to himself through prayer to get the result that he foreordained himself to bring about, except in simple foreknowledge, in which he simply stuck with the future he sees before he can get around to it. So, yeah, we talked about many issues with foreknowledge in the first volume, and this is just showing yet another issue. You know, if, if prayer is to mean anything, foreknowledge in any sort of exact sense isn't going to make any sense. I think on all these views, except the open view, that no real interpersonal relationship is even possible. And on the open view, a genuine interpersonal relationship is possible. But it's unwise to ask God to do anything because of our relationship to God, where we lack so much knowledge that he has, that we would be unwise to try to teach God how to bring about the future that he's not already committed to bringing about because of his sheer love and goodness. However, that's where we get into a relational solution, because that's what you're addressing in your chair analogy. Yeah. And before we get there, I just want to read these quotes because you put it really nicely. On that note of why would we want to tell God what to do, if prayer is limited to its effect on me, then petitions of the sort offered by Jesus for the welfare of his disciples are pointless. Prayers to calm the storm, to heal the sick, to soften the heart of another, to change things for the better are pointless, except to the extent that they affect my mental state. That's what we're talking about is petitionary prayer. Petition means we, we ask God to do something that we believe otherwise he wouldn't do if we hadn't asked. Yeah, so the the response to this problem given by Mormonism is a little more unique because of the type of relationship that we are invited into with God. And you say that, I claim the type of relationship God seeks with us transforms all of the possibilities for responding to the problems of theism as they've traditionally been conceived. And then that will lead us into the relational solution. Okay, so yeah, so this section is called relational solution. And so probably need you to introduce what you mean by this because the term relational for me is only understandable within open theism and i don't think that eleanor stump is from open theism a lot of what we're going to talk about is an argument from a philosopher named eleanor stump who we've talked about before so first off what is relational in this manner that you're talking about not open theism no in fact stump has argued that god is timeless and is a Thomist. okay just so that you understand however I'm simply going to observe, and and I observe in the chapter, that I think the solution she gives is inconsistent with the notion of God that she has. But we'll get to that more in detail in a second. What Eleanor Stump is saying, she looks at the nine-premise argument. In fact, she gives a form of this argument, and then asks, well, are there any ways around this problem of prayer? And she's suggesting the kind of approach that Jacob suggested in his chair analogy, where he's assembling the chair and his son wants to come and help. It may not be the most efficient way if your purpose is to assemble a chair, but if your purpose is actually to raise a son and teach him how to do life and how to do things, then it may make a whole lot of sense to slow down, let him help you, and instruct him along the way. 
So what Stump is suggesting is that once we have an idea of what God's purposes are, we can put into perspective why he may not always answer our prayers unless we ask, even though he can, and why even though he's committed to bringing about the best, the best may include something we hadn't included, and that is our growth and development and the growth and development of those in relationship with us. So a relational solution is that God cares about us in a way that we are his real purpose, not simply the this abstract best possible world that he could bring about. And so she she actually gives a number of analogies that arise in the family um, relationship between a parent and a child, which is, you know, the scriptural metaphor for our relationship with God. We call him father. He calls us his son or daughter. And so we're looking at this kind of parent filial relationship that we have with God. And the first thing she notes is that there may be reasons that God would not simply intervene every time he's asked to do something. Well, why not? Well, the same reason that you don't respond every time your child asks you for something. Let's say your child wants a candy bar. Candy bars, especially chocolate ones, are inherently good. In fact, they may be among the greatest goods that humankind has ever developed. I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm just going to give my opinion that chocolate makes the entire creation of the world worthwhile. Having said that, the mere fact that a child asks for a chocolate before dinner doesn't mean that you're going to give in to the child and give that child all the chocolate, all chocolate that child can eat no matter what. It's not in the child's best interest first, so you're going to act in your child's best interest by denying the request of the child. Well, you would have done that even if not. I mean, if your child hadn't asked, you wouldn't have given the child chocolate either, but you may have given the child chocolate after. But it may be that there's good reason for waiting. Let's give another one. If every time your child asks you for money or for a car or for whatever, you give in because you let's say you're rich and you have the ability to do it, you may still not respond to the child in the way the child desires because it will spoil the child. That is that you have goals in mind for the child that are better served by not getting everything that they want so that they can run around in the most expensive clothes and drive the most expensive car, live in the best house. And and you may even hold back on what you would like the child to have, but don't believe that it's in the best interest of the child to have that. And so you may wait. You may say, okay, I'll let you have the car, but first you have to earn the car by doing X, Y, and Z, or going and getting a job and earning enough money yourself because it's good for you to learn that way. So what Stump is arguing is that in our relationship with God, God has the ability to spoil us because the disparity in our power and knowledge and capacity to act is so great that God runs the risk of spoiling us if he always answers our prayers as we ask. And that he may even concede to prayers that aren't in our best interest the way he did with Joseph Smith so that we can learn a very valuable lesson. Joseph Smith, by the way, learned, he says what he learned in his relationship with God as a result of his prayer that where God relented and allowed him to give Martin Harris the manuscript of the Book of Mormon. He said that he learned that whatever God asks us to do is right. For him, that was a very valuable lesson. Did he have another way to learn that lesson? I don't know. It was a really tough experience for Joseph Smith. I mean, he was distraught when he found out that Martin Harris lost the manuscript when he gave it to him. Another thing that Stump doesn't necessarily bring up, but I think is another issue or example, is just kind of the balance of the whole world. God can't say yes to everyone. It brought to mind the movie Bruce Almighty to me and Jim Carrey there, if you haven't seen that. 
basically gets the power of God for a couple days. And so he has prayers go into the form of emails. And so he's like, holy cow, there's like 10 billion emails. He's like, you know what? I don't have time for this. Yes to all. So he says yes to every single person's prayer. And then in a couple days, the city that is, that's where the prayers are from is just in absolute chaos because everyone won the lottery. Everyone has all these things. And then it just, the city's burning down by then. That's also something to consider. Yeah, no, I mean, in the, in, I mean, God has a lot more on his mind than just whether or not you're going to have the best pair of pants to wear during to school that day. And, you know, and Bruce Almighty's a good example, I suppose, a kind of a cinematic example of how things could go totally wrong if God just said yes to everything. And even when it's in our best interest, he may withhold something from us because the best interest isn't just the best state of affairs. Because the state of affairs includes us. And so the greatest state of affairs includes one where we learn the lessons that are there for us to learn. And we learn to form a character through our choices in tough situations. And so God may even allow us to experience pain and evil. This is a larger discussion. But as I said, this is a subset of the problem of evil. And it dovetails with it in many ways. And so why would God wait? Well, Stump says maybe he doesn't want to spoil us. Maybe it's like the way that a child of a rural family is spoiled. We've all seen children who were spoiled, and it just doesn't turn out very well. And so God has other purposes in mind than just the greatest possible good, because the greatest possible good includes us, but it also includes us growing and learning, and in particular, learning to love. And sometimes love must be hard won, because we've learned tough lessons about how to treat each other. And so I think Stump has come up with, I guess, in, a, in the problem of evil, we would call this a greater good that God can achieve by not just immediately giving us what we want. And, the you know, waiting on us to ask would seem to be a greater good that would, you know, allow him to wait before he gives us what otherwise he would just give us, because the greatest good isn't just giving it to us. Yeah, and so, I mean, we'll go into this more later, but in the problem of evil, which is I guess just to briefly state it, if you don't, not like evil, like bad, but basically it's the problem of why do, why do bad things happen to people in general? And so her solution kind of falls in line with what's called the soul-building theodicy. And a theodicy just means justifying God or justifying why God acts in the world. And so she's basically saying, well, God doesn't answer certain prayers or does answer them because his goal is to build our souls and such. And so there's a couple quotes or just this quote here, and then it'll lead us into the next section. It says, prayer is a form of empowerment. We empower God to respond to us without the risk of overwhelming us, and we are empowered to achieve our goals by God's waiting for us to resolve our problems. By waiting until we ask, God creates a space in which we can respond in friendship and love rather than out of a desire to let a friend like God do everything for us. Sorry, if I don't know if I said Stump said that. You said that, but in regard to some of her ideas. Right. I think that Stump does solve a certain part of the problem of prayer, and that is, I think it does succeed in explaining why God might not respond to everything we ask. But does it really say why it would make sense for us to ask God for things? It explains why God may not give us everything we want, but if we trust God to always bring about the best, why would we ask at all? And I'm not sure it fully addresses that except that maybe by asking and learning that sometimes, like a loving parent, God responds, and sometimes he doesn't. Maybe we learn about relationships, and maybe we actually develop into a loving relationship with God. And so there's an interpersonal value in this dialogue. In other words, we learn to know God. 
We learn to know ourselves in this relationship. And this is a very valuable thing in the world. And so I think that she does give at least one. And there, there are probably a lot of other reasons we could come up with why God would wait on us before just giving us what we want. But it also gives us a reason to ask. We may wait on our child to ask us for things instead of simply giving it to them because we want them to grow and realize what's in their best interest and to be able to think it through. And we want it to be their choice what their life is about. If I just give my child everything I think they should have before they ask, I'm choosing what their life is about rather than allowing them to choose their life. And so God may well wait on us in addition, and Stump doesn't in particular suggest this, but I think it's a corollary of what she is suggesting, that it makes a lot of sense to wait for us to ask before giving us everything because it will lead to a more profound relationship. It will lead to our growth as persons. And it may teach us a lot about ourselves when we don't get everything we want until we ask for it. I have some thoughts on that, but they kind of tie into this next part. So let's move on here. Like I was saying, in this soul building idea, that's all well and good for you asking for God to help you get a job or to help you get better from a sickness or to help you be able to make it through a hardship. But that brings up, what about prayers for others or intercessory prayers? Yeah, I mean, it's like when Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel, he's determining what he thinks is in the best interest of Israel, right? And he doesn't run down there and ask them, hey, would you rather have God wipe you out and raise up a great nation of me, or or should I just, you know, intervene and not let him kill you? (laughs) Stupid question to ask them, but, you know, he didn't do it. But does it make a lot of sense for us to pray for others? And here's the problem. If I assume that God is building me as a person by allowing me to pray for my friend, let me give a concrete example. I have a friend who has cancer, and God may see that by allowing me to pray for my friend and waiting until I ask to heal my friend, I learn about prayer and I learn to trust God. I learn something very valuable, but what about my friend? (laughs) You know, it seems that God is using my friend as a mere means, that is, as a mere object in order to benefit me and to teach me lessons. And that seems to me to be impermissible. It seems to me that it's obligatory even for God to not treat us as mere means. That is, that if God is using me as a means to benefit you, then he's ignoring my personhood, my value in the interpersonal relationship, and he's merely allowing me to experience pain and suffering and so forth in order to benefit you. Yeah, which we we all hope that's not the case. <laughs> well, uh, we'll get into that. It, you know, based upon the Kantian categorical imperatives, it would seem that this would be immoral if you accept any form of those. Or if you accept something like I've argued for, the I-thou relationship to treat another person as an object is simply morally impermissible. Persons aren't objects. They don't have the mere value of a thing to be manipulated and used. We have a certain dignity that requires that we be ends in and of ourselves, that is, that the purpose be for my benefit, and not merely for my benefit if it's my friend who's at issue. I can't use him, God can't use him as a mere object to teach me a lesson. In other words, my friend becomes an object lesson, and that's immoral, and I assert that it's immoral even for God. All right. Yeah, like I said, we'll get into that a bit later, too, but at least top of my head, thoughts on that is just, I mean, I guess on your view, God would have to basically allow your friend to get cancer, but let's just say friend got cancer, God didn't necessarily cause it, it just is a natural thing that arose. And so it didn't happen for the reason of you being able to pray, but that is one good thing that can come out of it. So there's a bad thing, and you can get good out of it. People are building their souls by 
seeing you, having compassion, and serving you. There is spiritual benefit from that. And it's not just like, you know, we didn't give someone cancer just so someone else might benefit, but that is a good that God can bring out of it. But another example in the book you bring about is a friend with a drug addiction. I'll read this example. It says, for example, I pray for my friend to recover from his drug addiction. Shouldn't a loving parent not condition the welfare of my friend on what I do as a means of creating an interpersonal relationship with me? Just kind of what we were talking about. Shouldn't God do what was best for my friend without conditioning his response on me, especially when my friend suffers from a physical, mental, and cultural conditioning that makes it difficult for him to grasp that there is, in fact, a loving God who responds to requests? And then you go into an example here. So it says, perhaps my prayer will lead God to respond in such a dramatic fashion that my friend is quite likely to seek help. Perhaps my friend will be brought to such a point that he literally cannot go on unless his life changes, and through this recognition will be led to seek God. And you give the example of Alma the Younger. Most Mormons probably know the story, but for those that might not be familiar, or just to recap, Alma has a son, Alma the Younger, who is rebellious. He's going around bashing the church. He has some friends, and they go around just being bad. And he prays for his son. And in response to his prayer, God sends an angel who stops Alma the Younger in his tracks, and he basically goes into like a spiritual coma for a few days where he has a great change of heart and he benefits from that and you're saying well if god can do that why would it matter that i prayed for that or like why would he wait for his father's prayer to do that or would his answer have been different had his father not done that maybe he would have had a slower path anyway what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean the fact is is we don't know the answers to these questions but the text presents the response to Alma the Younger as God's response to Alma the Elder's prayers. And so God is, in a sense, intervening in a way that is so dramatic with Alma the Younger that it changes his entire life, changes the course and history of the world, as a matter of fact. And so it may be that, for instance, we pray for our children. Let's take again this example of a I have a son who's a drug addict, and so I plead with all my heart for God to heal him of his drug addiction. Here's the problem. I believe that God honors free will. I believe he honors every choice we make and that he's not going to interfere with the choices we make. Human beings may because if he gets caught with drugs, the police are going to throw him in the clink. But bottom line is is that God's going to honor that choice. And the question is, if I pray for my son to be healed, could I possibly do it in a way that, that wouldn't be interfering with his freedom? in the way that the police would if they threw him in jail or put him into a drug rehab program through coercion. Now, maybe in my son's best interest, a lot of parents have done this. They've gathered up their children, they've hauled them off to a ranch or some kind of rehab place and just said, sorry, you don't get any freedom in this regard. That stops when they turn 18, at least in the United States, because then they're a majority and they can make their own decisions. It's only when their children don't have fully formed brains that they can't make these choices for themselves. So it may make sense in connection with a younger child to say that as a parent, I'm simply entitled to interfere in that child's life. And maybe that's the way it is with God, that he's entitled to interfere in our lives the way that we coerce our children because we see what's in their best interest. But we're not asking about, you know, can God interfere in my life if I ask him and give him permission to do so? Because there's a certain form of permission that occurs when I pray to God and say, please help me overcome my drug addiction. I'm giving God permission to intervene in my life. But when I pray for my friend, he's not giving permission to intervene in his life. 
he isn't giving permission to override his will, and his will at this point is to take drugs, and he's not giving permission for me to form my purpose for his life, which is to be drug-free, in opposition to his own, which is to enjoy being on drugs. And so the question then is, well, does this kind of relational solution actually work when I'm praying for someone else rather than myself? And it seems that it's very problematic to suggest that God could intervene in these ways because it seems to violate the very kinds of interpersonal values that we set up in the first place in the interpersonal solution when we're talking about second parties or you know somebody other than ourselves. And in fact, my conclusion is that this relational solution doesn't work so well in the tradition because we can't use my friend as a mere means to teach me something, and it would be improper for God to interfere, intervene, or become involved in my friend's life without his own permission instead of just my own. So it seems that the relational solution is limited when we're praying for others. All right, and then you also bring up that it's also limited in regards to prayers to alter the environment, such as the weather or something. And this is a timely topic just because, you know, there's been tons of hurricanes, and in Mexico they've had volcanoes and earthquakes and all kinds of things like that. And we can sit up here and pray like, hey, please, God, don't let more people die from these earthquakes. And it's like, what kind of God would wait for someone's prayer over in America that doesn't really see or know these people in order to then stop the destruction that these earthquakes are causing? And again, this is related to the problem of evil and natural evils, but it also comes up in prayer. Yeah, and it has the same kind of, I think, distinction between natural evil and moral evil as the, as the problem of evil has. And that is, when we're talking about these kind of natural occurrences, they don't arise through the acts of free will of others. So the problem isn't that God would be interfering with the free will of another, but also there's not an interpersonal relationship. The interpersonal nature and values that are involved in God waiting on us to get our permission, waiting on us so that we can grow and not be spoiled. Those kind of interpersonal issues don't exist when you're talking about the natural environment. And so it's a solution that simply seems inapplicable altogether. In other words, God is working on a relationship with the world and the weather. He's working on a relationship with us. If there is a relationship between God and the world, it seems that the interpersonal solution that we've been talking about isn't going to apply. All right. But you bring up, I seeing on her view, that maybe if everything was always nice and sunny all the time, then we wouldn't grow to appreciate God's hand in all things, or we'd expect perfect peace is just the way that things are, so we wouldn't appreciate it when it's good, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, look at it from a couple of different perspectives. That kind of an observation justifies God in not having an hedonic paradise that is a world full of bliss and no problems. It doesn't really justify storms that batter and kill young children and, and destroy lives. And it's hard to understand how interacting with the weather would get in the way of interpersonal relationships. And so at least the particular greater good that was identified by Stump in the interpersonal or the relational model doesn't seem even applicable in this arena. But let's look at it from a different angle. You've got Jesus. He's on the boat with his disciples. The storm comes up and he calms the storm, right? So they ask him, you know, Master, what are you doing sitting around? Calm the storm. <laughs> they were afraid. And they were amazed because at least the pericopen in the scriptural text suggests that they saw this as a miracle and they were amazed at the scope of power that even the storm would obey him. And the purpose of the pericope, as I understand it, is to emphasize the scope of God's power and that even nature obeys him. It shows that. 
But let's say that we don't get a tornado in Utah this year. There have only been a few. And that a tornado doesn't show up in Utah is no big deal because we live in a desert and tornadoes are few and far between. We don't expect tornadoes. So when tornadoes don't show up, I never hear people thanking God that he saved them from the tornado that otherwise would have occurred that never occurred. Because the problem is, we just don't know. And there's no way to really know if a tornado would have formed if somebody hadn't prayed for good weather or somebody hadn't prayed for safety of those involved or something like that. And so it seems that the benefit that the disciples drive from Jesus calming the storm generally doesn't apply with the weather because it's so darn unclear every single time the weather occurs that God's involved that it doesn't seem to be a really great teaching technique. On the other hand, I think I can justify, at least to some extent, a world that is a hedonic paradise where real challenges arise and real opportunities to serve others and to heal others arises. But whether we can justify that level of evil would have to wait the problem of evil, which will be my fourth book if I can get it out. But the bottom line is that in this kind of a framework, I don't think the interpersonal relation model is going to solve this particular kind of problem for us. All right, and then let me just read this quote, and then we'll sum up with what we have here. So, I believe that Stump is correct in her assessment of God's reasons to wait for us to ask. Indeed, I believe that the primary purpose of human existence is to grant us a space where we can choose to enter into a genuine relationship of love with God. Yet, I believe that Mormonism uniquely provides a framework for such dialogue of trust and love among peers in which God can truly call us his friends. And so that's kind of a teaser for what we're going to get into, but... Yeah, and we can get into that later. Let me just make one comment, just kind of a teaser for next week, and that is Stump is a Thomist, and in this one, God knows what we're going to ask before we ask it, and he knows because he is causally related to the earth such that everything that happens flows from his knowledge in a causal way. So our prayers become a really sophisticated way of God speaking to himself and bringing about the results that he desired. They may happen after our prayer, but saying that they happen because of our prayer would be a stretch. In fact, it would be logically impossible. So I'm just going to assert that Eleanor Stump has, I think, given us some very good guidance on some reasons why God may wait for us to ask or give permission. I don't see how it works with her view of God, and we'll get into that more in the next one. Well, yeah, next time we'll dive into that problem we just brought up, as well as a few others, and we'll talk about Mormonism's view of prayer as well. All right, so till then. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.